Welcome to episode 10 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I'm your host, Miles Taylor, and we are hosting this on Call In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. Our guest today is someone who is used to taking hard questions. And that is Amy McGrath. She is a leader who has been uh, everything from a fighter pilot to a fighter for our democracy. She ran for the U.S. Senate. Many of you know her when she ran against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. I'm excited to talk to Amy because back then we were on opposite sides of that race. And because of what's happened in our republic, I'm really excited to be on the same side now mm-hmm. and uh, and fighting for the same issues. And Amy, you've since then really been very active on civic issues and fighting for our democracy. So I'm excited to ask you about that. Let's dive in in the interest of time. Um, Before we get into the heady issues of the day, Amy, welcome. What's on your mind? (laughs) Well, it's great to be with you. And, you know, you summed it up at at the very beginning. There's so much going on uh, around the world and here at home. And uh, this is just such a a really critical time for our country and for the world. And I'm happy to be uh, with you talking about this because for those of us, um, and I believe many of your listeners uh, love our country and love our democracy, this is not a time to sit down. This is a time to be involved and to um, defend it. I want to ask you the question that you used to get all the time when you were in the military and then, you know, at other points in your life of public service. It's the what keeps you up at night question. You know, people in the national security realm always get asked, well, what keeps you up at night? What are you most worried about? I'm interested in your answer and whether it's evolved uh, since your Senate run. Um. That's a great question. And it's funny you you ask that because that is the question that I've really spent a lot of my adult life thinking about, you know, um, mostly in uniform. One of my jobs after being a fighter pilot was uh, going to D.C. and doing just that, thinking about how to defend our country and what are sort of the worst case scenarios that we could see in the future. And um, so that's that's what my life has been about um, since the Senate run. And really, I think in particular in the last four or five years, how my thinking has evolved in this from somebody who wore the uniform and was thinking mostly of existential threats to our country, right? Um, doing a lot of work on chemical, biological weapons uh, and how they would impact our country and, and nuclear proliferation and that sort of thing. In the last four or five years, you know, I have believed and still believe that some of the biggest threats to our country are internal, the biggest threats to our democratic values um, and to our democracy is, you know, what we're seeing right now with uh, forces of, let's just call them authoritarian forces. This isn't Republican or Democrat. This is just authoritarian forces that um are you know backing Donald Trump um, who really want him back and what that's going to do to our democracy I mean it's that's that I believe is the biggest threat do you I mean to put a fine point on it the the 
potential for the return of Donald Trump? Do you think that's the biggest threat to our democracy? I do. I think that our democracy will never be the same if we if we have another Trump presidency. This is a man who want. I mean, think about right now with everything that's going on in Ukraine. This is a man who wanted to pull us out of NATO, and and you know if he becomes president again, you know that NATO might not exist. We might pull out. Uh, think about how do we want him back in office with everything that's going on with Vladimir Putin? I mean, this is a man who called. Vladimir Putin, savvy, a genius, uh, smart, you know, and, and, you know, I believe if anybody that, that thinks that I'm overstating this, I would encourage you to go back to the tapes, the leaked tape of President Trump after the election of 2020, where he spoke with the Secretary of State from Georgia. And how he, what he said to him, just find me 11,780 votes. I just have to find 12,000 votes. And then he went on over an hour berating the Secretary of State and then going even further and saying, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm going to tell, I'm notifying you that you could be, you could be making a criminal offense if you don't do what I tell you to do. I mean, this is, this is unprecedented. This is like uh, what we see in places like Belarus, right? I mean, and, and how is this any different than an authoritarian country? And so what I feel like is the threat is real. We saw that he tried to subvert the election in 2020. Uh, it didn't work because the weak link were persons of integrity in key election spots like secretaries of state around the country. And what is he trying to do now? He's trying to lay the groundwork to make sure that in 2024, the secretaries of state in key states around the country are his cronies, are people who are election deniers. This is happening. And, and what I'm concerned about is while we're all sleeping, you know, thinking this can't happen, and we have a tendency here in the United States, particularly um, folks on my side of the aisle and Democrats, in, in thinking, oh, well, that'll never happen. Don't worry. That's far-fetched. No, no, it's not far-fetched anymore. And in fact, he's very open about it. He's laying the groundwork. These people are running for office and they are gaining traction and we have to stop them. You know, we you've seen this firsthand. I mean, you've you've been in the political trenches. You've you've watched how the other side operates. You were you know there really on the ground floor as as some of this extremism started to creep into our politics. I, I wonder what you make of some of these candidacies we've seen announced in recent days. For instance, you know, Sarah Palin, after the tragic death of Don Young from Alaska, has announced that she's running for office uh, up there for their, you know, statewide congressional seat. You know, you could argue that Sarah Palin was part of the genesis of some of the more populist extremist forces mm -hmm. we've seen overtake the Republican Party. And, and now here are those progenitors kind of coming back, you know, roaring back to life. Mm -hmm. Do you think folks like her are, are going to be successful? Do you anticipate that the tide will will rise of extremism or, or is the tide going to go down? 
I, I'm very worried. I think these folks like Sarah Palin are opportunists. They see an opportunity for themselves to insert back into the political world, and they see it by, you know, latching on to Donald Trump and basically doing whatever he tells them to do. Um, and what I worry about is that, uh, you know, those of us who are informed, those of us who really care about our democracy, that, um, you know, we we tend to be some t- somewhat complacent about some of these things. We tend to want to go back into, you know, I, I really like those days where it was Republican versus Democrat. And at the end of the day, we could just shake hands and argue about tax policy miles, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we sort of like want those days to come back. You know, my, my husband's a Republican. I'm a Democrat. You know, we, 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 like, we like want those like uh, uh, arguments to come back where we're, we're, we're arguing about policy and, and overall the size of government or whatever. That, that's not where we're at. And, and so when I worry about with people like Sarah Palin, who really... Um, are like Donald Trump in the sense that they're sort of, um, you know, they're, they're sort of movie star-ish, right? That, that, that there's no substance there. It's just that pe- people know their name is that they can get traction because um, a lot of voters, you know, vote for that that kind of celebrity status. But those of us that really care about our democracy, who are informed, uh, we have to stand up to this and and make sure that we're we're still involved. That's what mm-hmm. I'm worried about. Uh, I, I want to ask you about something you just mentioned, and that is you, you run a bipartisan household. <laughs> well, <laughs> first, tell me yeah. uh, what that was like running for office. You know, you've run yeah. for office twice and as a Democrat and you've got a Republican husband. What was that like? Uh, <laughs> and, but, and what lessons have you learned from living in a bipartisan household? You guys are kind of like the James Carville, Mary Madeline uh, couple <laughs> of, of the 21st century or the modern, you know, period. Uh, what's uh, what lessons have you learned from that? Well, first of all, um, I was an independent for my entire military career, which was 24 years. So pretty much since the time I was 18 years old and could vote, I was an independent. And I did that because I really believed in both parties. You know, I believed in there were I, I was a sort of a uh, socially um, liberal kind of person in the sense that, you know, um, I kind of wanted government out of people's uh, personal lives. Uh, At the same time, I was sort of a a defense hawk, right? Being in the military, understanding our place in the world and how important it is. Uh, And I also believe that, you know, we should, you know, pay for the things we want, uh, services of of government. So I, I sort of fell in the middle there. And it wasn't until um, I saw kind of the Republican Party, in, in my opinion, you may disagree with me since you were in the administration, but um, kind of start going down a really bad, slippery, dark slope. And that was the rise of Donald Trump in, in 2016. And that was when I decided to get out of the military and stand up and run for office. And, it, you know, I was much more aligned with um, the way that the Democratic Party was leaning at that time. And and so but, you know, my husband was a lifelong Republican and is, you know, but he's we're we're a lot alike in the in, in those sort of middle of the road things. It's really about common sense. And I think what I've learned, the lessons learned there is that for for Eric, for my husband, you know, he'll he will would quite often come home and say, you know, the argument on this side is is this. 
and you know, uh, what do you think about this? I mean, he was always sort of the one who was bringing me back down and balancing me out. Uh, and that's, I felt like was something really important and good on the campaign trail because, um, you know, it was about balance for me. But, you know, it wasn't in the cards here in Kentucky. This is an extremely red state. And unfortunately, there's a just a ton of, of misinformation and disinformation. And you're also running against, you know, 20 or 30 years of bashing one side uh, as evil or what what have you. So it was a tough race, but I, I'm really glad that I had Eric to sort of balance me out. I think that's all anyone could ask for running for public office to have mm-hmm. a good partner through the ups and downs. But, you know, in addition to having the support at home, you know, you've been through harder uh, experiences. I mean, you know, you've flown 2000 flight hours, 85 mm-hmm. combat missions. I'm obligated to ask you, as someone who's genuinely been a warfighter, uh, what lessons did you bring from your military experience into the political realm? And and, I, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on on why members of the military make really good public servants. And, and, and we can get into that because you've done some extraordinary work trying to recruit other veterans and especially a new crop of female leaders into the public arena. But but I want to start with your military service and how you think some of that translated into these increasingly raucous uh, political campaigns. Well, first of all, let me say that, you know, those of us who are veterans, we are not perfect. And, uh, you know, when I say I advocate for more veterans to run and get elected into political office, it doesn't mean that um, all veterans who are who are elected are are you know perfect elected officials. I I advocate for veterans because I believe that veterans at least have had the experience of not of putting this country above themselves and above their political party. Um, I, I and I believe that 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 helps and could help us in the future. In other words. You know, we we haven't always worn the red jersey or the blue jersey. I didn't grow up within the Democratic Party system. I didn't do an internship on Capitol Hill and then work for a member of Congress and then, you know, work at the DNC or any of that stuff. And I feel like uh, it's really important right now to have people who have shown that they can do something beyond just being in a political party. And so that's why I advocate for veterans and I, I advocate for women in particular because, you know, there's only 25 percent women in Congress and we absolutely need more representation there. But I think, you know, flying, being a fighter pilot has helped me on the campaign trail. It's helping me in politics really because, number one, I've learned, you know, I can do the hard things. When you fly a 70 million dollar jet onto the back of an aircraft carrier at night in bad weather, uh, and land, you know, you, you feel pretty confident after that, that you can do hard things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? I, imagine. And, and so when I wouldn't I, when feel I, confident. I would feel dead. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, you train for it. You know, you can do it. There's a sort of King Kong factor about it of, of confidence. And so when, you know, when you have, you need an American, a patriot to go up against Mitch McConnell, you know, hey, man, I can do that because I've done all of these other things 
And 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 we need somebody. This country needs somebody to, to take that stand. I was ready to do it. You know, keep your eye on the ball uh, and and do the hard things. That's something that that um, I've been able to do in my life. Tell me a little bit about your efforts to recruit a new generation of former veterans and female leaders into the arena, as, as we discussed. You've, you've put a lot of your energy and effort into that. Uh, one, do you feel optimistic that there is that new crop coming in? Two, I'm curious what the barriers are and what you most often hear from those potential public servants. Because right now, the average American's watching the caliber of people who enter mm -hmm. uh, public office or, or try to run for public office. And we're pretty darn disappointed. <laughs> the talent yeah. pool is shit. Yeah. And yeah. there's just disastrous folks. I mean, you talk about female leaders, you know, the, the most prominent female leaders right now in Congress are folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, mm -hmm. uh, who's an absolute looney tune. Uh, and then on, on the far left, you've got folks like mm -hmm. AOC who are pulling, you know, the left more in the woke direction. You know, they, they, they consume much more attention in the media than, you know, a Nancy Pelosi. So how do you counteract that and get good, strong, centrist female leaders into the fold? Yeah. Um, well, if you're talking in terms of policy, um, I agree with you. And I, I wish we had more centrist leaders, but I, I, I have to, I have to push back on a, a little bit of, I just don't think you can compare AOC to Marjorie Taylor Greene in terms of their behavior. And, and I think that's really important to, to point out is that we, we really do have one side that their behavior is so abhorrent that um, we, we have to call it out. And it's not, it can't just be members of, of my side that calls it out. It has to be Republicans that call it out. And that's been one deep deep disappointment uh, for me as an American with the current Republican Party and its leadership. But that said, I think that the uh, there are barriers, as you said, to, to veterans getting into to office. Number one, um, a lot of ver veterans see what you just what you just said. They, they see the extremists. They see uh, politics as a is a dirty thing. They see a lot of people without integrity without character, without honor, uh, not only getting elected, but, but rising in the ranks of the leadership in our country. I mean, one of the reasons I, I decided to get out of the military and run for office is I was teaching at the U.S. Naval Academy. And here I am teaching midshipmen uh, that leaders have to have honor, that leaders have to have character and integrity. And who rises in 2016 to the, to the nomination of, of a major Republican uh, a major party in, in this country and then becomes president of the United States, a guy who really doesn't embody the leadership characteristics that we have been teaching midshipmen and cadets um, in our military. And, and it was so important that I feel like we had needed to have better political leaders and and on, and on both sides of the aisle. But I think so that's one barrier is is veterans look at that and they say, this is this is not a profession that is respected in the way that I want to be respected. And this is a, a really nasty uh, place to be. And I don't want to go there. And I think the other thing that is a barrier to veterans is money, right? Those of us that serve the country, by and large, we, we um, don't have a ton of rich friends. We didn't necessarily grow up within a political family. So we don't have that last name that gets us that, you know, that first uh, uh, position, or maybe we, we ran for our dad's seat, you know what I mean? And, and voters didn't know the difference. I mean, 
these are things that that are real barriers for for public servants running. And so one of the things that I try to do with my organization, Honor Bound, is to try to mentor and and help people get into office. Because you know what? It wasn't in the cards for me in Kentucky, but it was in the cards for a lot of others. And so I always talk about the women, um, fellow women veterans who ran with me in 2018. You know, there were eight of us that ran in 2018. Uh, three of us did not get in. Five did. Uh, Chrissy Houlihan, Elaine Luria, uh, Lisa Slotkin, um, uh, Mikey Sherrill, to name just a few. Okay. They all, Abigail Spanberger, CIA uh, veteran, they all got in and they're doing tremendous things. They may not be the loudest uh, on the Democratic side. They may not be the one that's getting the most uh, media attention, but they are doing really good work for our country. Um, and the three of us that didn't get in, you know, we're all still trying to work from the outside. And so what I want to do is try to inspire the next Abigail Spanberger to step up and run um, and get in office because we need more people like that. And, and these are folks who are still kind of in the fight of their political lives. And so, you know, it's not just uh, the, looking at the long term. I mean, there's a short term urgent demand to make sure or urgent need rather to make sure that these folks remain in office. I mean, the names that you listed mm-hmm. off, it's to me, it's a striking side by side. The extremists like the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens are getting a lot of attention and they're they are in super safe districts where yeah. they are almost guaranteed reelection. The folks that you just listed, Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, Abby Spanberger in Virginia, Elaine Luria in Virginia, these good centrist, strong, you know, unifying leaders, they're the ones who are in these super high risk districts where they could be taken out by extremists. What, what do you make of that? <laughs> Why are the good guys winning and the bad guys losing? And well, it's, around? you know, it's those districts that are, are continually fought over that are the hardest districts. They're the ones where we really need patriots to, like I said, do the hard things because they're not they are not uh, districts that are just going to be easy to win. Um, I mean, imagine in 2018 if Alyssa Slotkin and Abigail and Mikey and all these people didn't stand up, you know, and, and we didn't flip the House in 2018 and we had no check on on President Trump. Imagine if if Gina Ortiz and MJ Hagar and myself hadn't stood up and, you know, we all lost really tough races. But I'll tell you what, Miles, we 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 made a difference in 18 because we made our districts competitive in ways that the, the other side had to had to look at. And so, you know, Abigail and Alyssa and Jason Crow and, and Max Rose, and all of these other guys that were able to get in moderate Democrats to to check that president in, in 18 um, were able to get in because a lot of us stood up around the nation. And, and you see the same thing in 2020 uh, to some degree. I mean, look, the, when, when, I, uh, when, when I lost this race here in Kentucky in, in 2020, within 48 hours, we moved our entire operation, our entire fundraising operation over to Georgia for the Georgia runoff races. When a lot of people felt like those could not be won, we did not give up. And I'll tell you what, imagine right now a, a GOP-controlled Senate it's just, I just, I'm really, look, I'm not trying to be partisan, but I just feel like right now we, we to, to push back against the Trumpian forces of the world, 
the current Republican Party that is following Donald Trump tooth and nail needs to be defeated continually. Well, and, and this is where you and I find a very interesting and, and odd alignment is I just think my party's got to get beat. And you, you got to ask yourself, you know, when would you root against your favorite football team? Well, you would root against your team if your team came out onto the field and said, we're going to throw out all the rules of the game so that we can get to the Super Bowl every year, no matter what. And it's not competitive. And you'd say, well, wait, this sport sucks. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. want my team to lose. So they stop rigging the sport. I want to see, see real competition and choice. And that's what's happening with my party right now. The Republican Party wants to rig the game to get to the Super Bowl every year and win and hoist the trophy. And uh, but but this isn't football. This is American democracy. And the stakes are far higher. And it's far more concerning. And you know, from that standpoint, I mean, that's why I think a lot of us disaffected Republicans have gone and aligned with uh, unifying and patriotic Democrats like you to say, we've got to we've got to join forces and fight for, for our country. The thing that concerns me, especially in the lead up to the midterms, is, as you noted, I, I think an unreformed pro-Trump, pro-Putin GOP has a good shot at retaking yeah. the House and potentially the Senate. And, and that could be catastrophic in the 24 presidential, especially if uh, a Kevin McCarthy-led House of Representatives tries to tilt the presidential election in you know, their favor. And um, you know, that, that's, that's mm -hmm. worrisome for us. They showed an inclination to do it in 2020. There, there's been talk about, again, you know, rigging the system in 24 to help uh, a Donald Trump get over the top. Um, I, I want to know what advice you would give to Democrats on countering this, because, again, I go back to my worry is that uh, I'm concerned that the left might not be galvanizing Americans the way they need to. Mm -hmm. And really, the Rust Belt and the Midwest have become sort of the key states when it comes to the balance of power in Washington. We saw that in 2016. We saw it again in 2020, you know it well. I mean, you were born in Ohio. You went to school in my home state of Indiana, really close to where I grew up at Notre Dame, uh, about 15 minutes away from where I grew up. And, and, and you've lived and run for office in Kentucky. I mean, you know the region very well. What, what do Democrats need to do to win over the Rust Belt, to win over the Midwest and make sure that the pro-democracy coalition stays united as, you know, folks like Trump may come roaring back? Yeah, it's a tough question. Democrats have been losing a lot in rural areas and, and particularly in the Midwest. And we're, we're all trying to figure out, you know, how we can stop that from happening. I, I think um, and, and here in Kentucky, we, we were able to to run in both the House race and the Senate race significantly better numbers than the average Democrat did around the country or, or, or in, in the same sort of red area. Um, and that's good. And I, I think the, the way I approached it was being uh, common sense, going out there and, and talking about the bread and butter issues that really matter to people. I think that we still have to continue to try to do that. But at the same time, this what's happening in terms of the, the anti-democracy forces uh, the misinformation, the disinformation uh, coming from the Trumpists around the world has to be uh, countered. And I think we do that with, you talked about coalition campaigning. That means taking your, your red jersey off, taking your blue jersey off if you're me and saying, look, this isn't about 
uh, my political party. This is about small D democracy. And that's why, you know, I, I have this new project that I'm working on with, that, that deals with Secretary of State races, because for me, it's not that isn't even a partisan thing. We have to get people in office who are actually going to count the votes correctly and not be so partisan and so loyal to Donald Trump that um, if it doesn't go their way, they start endless investigations or they throw out the votes or they start endless recounts or they call certain uh, districts corrupt in order to um, appease Donald Trump. I mean, this is happening. This is real. He's trying to insert these people all around the country. So I think that's really important, number one. We have to have immediate protection of our elections. And those, uh, by the way, those Secretary of State races, there's 27 of them going on here in 2022. So the election of 2024 is the outcome of that could be very well decided by how much we act here in 2022. So I don't actually think that that's a Democrat Thing that we have to do it just as Democrats. I just think we have to do it as Democrats and Republicans that love this country. And then long term, I think we've got to continue to press for voting rights, uh, continue to press for reforms, these electoral reforms that really will help our democracy. You know, I'm not somebody that's for gerrymandering. I think that's that's crushing uh, our democracy. We do have to rein in money in politics as somebody that's that's run twice um, it's, 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 it's a very, very big issue and it's very corrosive and long-term I'd love to see some things like term limits and things like that. I mean, this is our country and, and going back to the, uh, the generational thing, I mean, this is our generation, Miles, this, this is our bag. We, we, we own this now and we've got to take it and run with it and make the changes that we need, you know, need to happen for our children to inherit a strong, democratic and small D uh, country. What issues do you think the Democratic Party should avoid in the midterms? What issues are going to alienate centrist voters that need to be brought into the fold to do that pro-democracy protection that you mentioned? I mean, I think there there's always going to be issues that um, the Republicans are going to continue to try to bring up uh, border issues and, and things like that, that they are going to try to pin on Democrats as 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 if this issue only happens when there's a Democrat in office. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that, you know, we just have to keep uh, governing effectively. And also, I think Democrats have to do a better job of touting the bread and butter stuff that we have done for the American people. So let me give you an example. Here in Kentucky, the infrastructure bill, we, we need infrastructure. We have parts of, of Kentucky that that do not still do not have access to broadband. We have lots of things that, that this infrastructure bill will help the state. We have a lot of lawmakers that voted against the bill. They're all Republican. And what's going to happen, and this is my fear because it's already starting to happen, is that they're now going to take credit for all these federally funded projects. And and they voted down on the bill. And, and we don't, unlike a, a state like Illinois, 
that has two Democratic senators who can go around and say, you know, look at the bill that I voted for. We we don't have Democratic senators and we don't have Democratic representatives except for one here in Kentucky. And so the the, the average person here is going to believe that these Republicans are the ones that, that did this. No, they didn't. And so we don't, here in, in Red America, we don't have the Democratic champions to really say, look at what we've done. And I think that's so important because you, you have to show people why you are governing effectively, why those COVID relief packages mattered, you know, um, all of that stuff. And we're, I don't think we're doing it. And it's the same thing you saw, Miles, um, after the Affordable Care Act was passed, you know, over 10 years ago. is we, we passed this, you know, not perfect bill, but it did a lot of good did a lot of good. We got thousands of more Americans uh, healthcare for the first time, uh, but we didn't, we didn't really talk about it, you know? Um, and we, we can't, we can't learn that lesson again or we'll get, we'll get crushed. Yeah. The, um, you know, on some of those issues, you and I may disagree. We're fervently in agreement on the defense of democracy, the importance of the democratic party, Focusing on that, focusing on bread and butter issues, getting people, uh, you know, out there on on the things that matter. And uh, infrastructure is such a great example. I, I'll never forget the day that Trump could have, you know, clinched an infrastructure deal with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, brought them into the White House, sat down with them in the cabinet uh, room. And instead of negotiating a deal, which I think Schumer and Pelosi thought they were there for, Trump went on a harangue about how their committees were investigating his administration. And he was so mad. And he said, I'm not going to cut a deal unless you stop the investigations. Basically, it was a quid pro quo. You stop investigating Mm -hmm. me and I'll give you an infrastructure deal. And then uh, he basically ended the meeting, kicked him out of the White House. And he went out to the Rose Garden and what should have been an announcement about an infrastructure deal. And he, he just went on a diatribe. So, you know, we were set back several years as infrastructure crumbled around this country because of Trump's petulant demands. And I bring this up because you said something very funny on Twitter yesterday that didn't escape my notice. Someone asked, uh, where should Trump build his presidential library? And this is another answer on which you and I agree. What was your answer? (laughs) Uh, Moscow. (laughs) I just thought that was one of the funniest things that I saw yesterday. Uh, Funny because it's almost True. Is, True. Is that, yeah. You know, Trump has shown in some cases more affinity for uh, Vladimir Putin than he has for his own uh, country and for the Kremlin than he has the White House in some instances. Uh, it's a funny joke, but just the other day we saw incredibly Trump come out and demand that uh, or insist that Putin help him dig up dirt on the president's son, Hunter Biden. This is stunning to me because. Donald Trump is the same man who was impeached the first time for trying to pressure Ukraine mm-hmm. to dig up dirt on his political rival. Now, Joe Biden, uh, President Biden, he, he's still at it. He's still asking foreign leaders to help mm-hmm. him dig up dirt on his rivals. It almost seems, Amy, like we've become numb to this and we've almost normalized it. How do, yeah. how do we turn that around? I think it's so hard because it's this, this, you know, Trump does something crazy and it's like, you, do do you talk about it? 
or do you just want to ignore it? And, and it's, it's, you know, it's this constant battle, like internal battle in myself, because it's so crazy that you, you want to stand up to it, but you don't want to give it any more, you don't want to give him any more uh, air than he already has. But think about the fact that, you know, during this, this past five, six weeks of the, the terrible war in Ukraine, um, our former president has not even said a single negative thing about Vladimir Putin. Think about the, the, the war crimes, the atrocities that are coming out every single day. I had to turn my teeth, I had to turn off the news last night. I told my husband to turn the news off last night because my kids were in the room and I did not want them to see the mangled bodies. This, I mean, and we have a former president who last weekend decided to put a presidential statement, a press release out about an effing hole in one that he got on the golf course. Okay. And he can't put out a statement about the atrocities and things that are happening in Ukraine. It ticks me off. It really, really ticks me off. And I, I believe that we have become a bit immune to it because so many of us, including myself, want it to just stop, just want it to go away. And we don't want to even push back on it because we don't want to give him any more uh, of a horn than he already has. But I do think it's important at times to realize how, how low we have gone with this man as uh, leading a, our country and now, um, thank, thankfully, not leading our country, but still leading the major political party in our country and could very well become the leader of our country again. And I'm, again, this is, this is going back to the very beginning of our conversation. This is what keeps me up at night. This is a threat. It's a threat to our country. It's a threat to the world. You mentioned Ukraine, Amy, and you know, you've served in very senior positions in the military. You've seen a lot of different angles from the Pentagon to Capitol Hill to out there as a warfighter above the battlefield. What are we not doing in Ukraine that we should be doing as a country? That's my first question. My second would be, uh, what's the best way that this could end in your view? Wow, those are really tough questions. Um, you know, Obviously, the best way it could end is for the Russian troops to to put their tanks in reverse and go back home <laughs> at this point. Um, yeah, everybody wants to talk about Putin having an off ramp and, and needing that. And I think there's a there there is a reality there. Um, you know, I, I know that President Zelensky has floated the idea of a possible um, neutrality in, in exchange for a security guarantee, you know, and the diplomats, everybody will be looking at that. And, and perhaps that is a way to to stop this madness. Um, but it, to your first question of what American should America should be doing more of, I think a couple things. One Number one, I want to make the point to a lot of people that a lot of what our country does doesn't need to be put on CNN. In other words, when we send weapon systems 
Uh, I, I would love to know about it. Miles would love to know about it. I'm sure, you know, um, George Stephanopoulos and all these other people would love to know about it and talk about it. But you know what? That's not even the best thing tactically for our for the Ukrainians. It's much better. And I think about when they were talking about surface air missile systems, it's much better to to not tell the Russians or the world publicly what we are giving the Ukrainians, um, because you can actually shoot down more aircraft if they don't know what's what's targeting them. Um, and so, I mean, they'll figure it out eventually. But I mean, so tactically, I think that that we are doing some stuff that we uh, are not telling the rest of the world about. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think we can continue to try to really pump in things like um, encrypted communication systems. Um, intelligence is so, so, so important. So I hope we have strong uh, links between us and the Ukrainians with intelligence. There's a lot of things other than, than uh, 28 MiG-29s to be able to uh, give to Ukraine. And then I also think, second, secondly, we have to start preparing our country and the world um, for the potential of cutting off Russian energy sources. And I know that's going to be really hard for um, the Europeans, the Germans, um, those people in Scandinavia and that sort of thing. But I think we need to be to be starting the public um, thinking about that. And, and it's going to have repercussions. It's already having repercussions here in the United States. And this is another thing that I worry about with our, our polarized um, political system and my lack of, how should I say this, um, belief that the current Republican Party will do the right thing. And in a sense that I, I believe that they will start, you know, blaming some of these things if they happen on Biden and on the other side, as opposed to blaming it on Putin and what our country might need to have to do. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm, I'm, I wish we could have somebody that could um, actually to leadership of, of both political parties that could rally our country in, in terms of what's really needed to counter uh, Vladimir Putin. You know, I, I watched the footage like many people the other day at one of Trump's rallies. Why he's holding rallies is is really unclear to me. But at one of his rallies, they were interviewing attendees and asking them, uh, would you rather have Joe Biden as president or Vladimir Putin? And, and folks were answering Putin and just the responses were bizarre. I mean, the fact that, mm -hmm. you know, millions of Americans have potentially been brainwashed into thinking one of our greatest geopolitical foes is actually a friend is in and of itself i think a national security threat uh i mean you know neither of us you and i came from different sides of the national security community but i i think that we would both say 10 years ago we could have never fathomed that you know hundreds of thousands let alone millions of americans would be brainwashed into being sympathetic towards a regime that really wants to see america kicked off its pedestal i, I don't know how you even reach those folks. Uh, at this point, it, to me, it seems the damage has already been done. When views like that get so closely held by people, it, it takes a generation to dispel them because folks don't want to admit they were wrong. Um, maybe you've got a more optimistic take on it than me, but but I, I really worry about the long-term implications of, of Trump and others having convinced uh, you know QAnon believers and others that uh, Russia's our buddy and we should team up with them. 
it's a really hard problem to tackle. And you're absolutely right to say brainwashed. You know, we used to look at other countries like North Korea and we used to think, you know, how can those how can the people, you know, believe what they believe? Well, it's it's consistent brainwashing. And you see that, you know, even in reports of how the Russian people are reacting to this war right now, because they're being told that this is a, a, you know, a, a military um, a special military operation where they're they're getting the 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 Nazis out of out of Ukraine, you know, kind of thing, and so uh, it's the misinformation is is there not only in other countries but it's here in the United States of America, and it's here uh, in it's been exacerbated by social media. People go down in these holes of QAnon and these you know One America News Network where they're not getting. Uh, real news. They're just getting fed a bunch of, of of crazy stuff. And Miles, you know, we've talked about this. Not only is it is it on the internet and crazy stuff in these in these news or pseudo news channels. We now have members of Congress that are are doing this stuff. And and it's it's this is I, I very much worry about it. But I I think that there are ways we can push back on it. Truth is always are, you know, the, the best thing out there. Let's continue to um, thank God we have a free press and continue to keep trying to get the truth out there. And also, I think there's a, a real um, conversation that needs to be had about trying to, I don't know if this is the right word, inoculate um, young Americans to disinformation sources in other words, um, making sure that that people who grow up know uh, what are the the good sources of information and what are those that are are just flat out lies. I don't know that we've done that very well, and I think that that we should continue to try to do that. Um, well, if that makes I sense. Always, I always say the best screen test for truth is to see it audition next to uh, delusion. And, and we're going to see a whole hell of a lot of that in these midterms is truly uh, deluded public servants uh, running for office against folks trying to, to tell the truth. Uh, you know, I don't want to over-index on talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I, it drove me nuts the other day to see she said something publicly about U.S. intelligence agencies need to stop running operations against Americans which is just the type of like QAnon mm-hmm. fodder that gets people thinking, well, you know, she's an elected member of Congress and she goes into classified mm-hmm. briefings. It must be true. Right. right. U.S. intelligence agencies must be running secret operations against Americans. I mean, this stuff does extraordinary damage. You and I both know that that's crazy. It's not true. We've been read into the most compartmented, sensitive programs in the government. Mm-hmm. No, the CIA is not spying on Americans and trying to undermine them and all these crazy conspiracy theories. But she gives it validity when she says that. And so do these other members. So, um, you know, you you continue to work to try to defeat extremists. uh, And I really, really applaud that. I think it's admirable. Um, I recognize, Amy, that we're running uh, close to time here. So I've got to ask you some completely silly questions. And you (laughs) can... You can say no to them. I'm going to call this the clickbait round of questions. Things I would never have imagined you would give me an answer to, but I want to ask them. Uh, and I, well, I'm just not a running for office now. So. There we go. Oh, yeah. Now we're going to get the good stuff. So maybe you get an answer. Uh, 
the slap heard around the world. What's Amy McGrath's take? You know, my my husband just asked me that last night. And I said to him, I'll say to you what I said to him. Um, with everything that's going on in the world right now, in Ukraine and in our country, um, I just, it, to me, it's a nothing burger. I, I just don't, I just don't care. I mean, I, 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 I feel, you know, that I'm moderately upset that somebody slapped somebody else. But you know what? Um, we got more important things going on. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, that's not how we'll frame it uh, when we put the <laughs> clickbait out there. I'm, I'm literally going to say on Twitter later, you know, listen in. What did Amy McGrath have to say about Will Smith? <laughs> folks are going to get all the way to this point in the podcast, be immensely disappointed, and they're going to unsubscribe. But uh, I think well, that is why you, why you get paid the big bucks in the video. yeah clickbait. <laughs> uh, how about this one, Elon Musk? I actually thought this was. I I love this story uh, that Elon Musk bought ten percent of Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago and is now being assigned to the board. Uh, what's your what's your take? Do you want to see Elon Musk become Twitter's overlord, or uh, is this a big uh, way for him to punk the social media platform? Um, you know, my my initial thought was this just shows you the power of money. You know, when you've got these these uber billionaires that can just do whatever they want. And to me, it was initially sad because, you know, I, I, I hate to, to be able to have one person just say, oh, I don't like that. So I'll just take it over kind of thing. Um, but I, I honestly I, my hope is that uh, this doesn't really mean that much in the long term. So. We'll oh, see. Damn, another good answer. Okay, I'm going to interrupt my flow really quick. At the tail end here, we've got uh, Jenny is a caller with a question. So Jenny, please jump in mm -hmm. with your question. Hey, Amy, I really enjoyed what you just had to say. And I uh, clicked around to your social media and your, and your website and saw you have a young family. Mm -hmm. And I just thought from what I heard and have seen, I, I wish you would have beaten Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Boy, that would have been a breath of fresh air. I love seeing, seeing young family mm. uh, members, people with young children participating because I think you have so much more skin in the game, you know, as a politician when you have a young family. Mm. Um, that being said, I am a Trump supporter and I did follow the Q drops in real time and then the proofs on President Trump's Twitter feed. And so I too take a little bit of umbrage against Q people because I'm one of them. Mm. But, you know, I don't feel like I've been deceived. I feel like I do try to listen to all sides and really ponder things and think things through. I don't feel like I'm I'm an idiot, you know, who's been brainwashed. Mm. But my big question for you is if you had been put in that Senate seat, what would have been your number one priorities as a new senator? Mm -hmm. um, I've said all along, and it, and it would have been the case that, that my priority would have the first bill I would want to pass is that democracy reform stuff, um, tackling money and politics, tackling gerrymandering, tackling, making sure that people can vote all of that, because I just think that 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 is that is like the basis of our democracy. We can have debates about um, health care and tax policy and, you know, what we're going to do on the environment and and all of that, you know, defense budget later on. 
but let's make sure that our democracy is protected in some in some ways that I feel like were low hanging uh, fruit ways. Um, And that was what I wanted to do right off the bat. But thanks. Yeah. And Jenny, thanks for the question. Um, I got to be honest with you. Uh, I I want us to do an episode here on the QAnon movement. And there's a lot of Americans who, in my personal view, have been deeply, deeply deceived by some of that misinformation um, and, and, and frankly, conspiracy theories that get spread through that universe. So I'd love to have a conversation where we're bringing folks on uh, and talking about that. You know, I'll just say from my perspective, having spent a career in the federal government, again, read into the most sensitive programs, the vast majority, if not the totality of information I'm seeing uh, from QAnon is blatantly false. These are people who are pretending they're, you know, deeply embedded in the federal government with security clearances. They're not. I mean, a lot of them have, pro, you know, been proven to be charlatans and liars and spreading totally fake and incendiary theories. That worries me a lot because uh, ordinary Americans are hearing this and saying, "Oh, wow, you know, these Q drops are based on real information." Uh, I, I was there. I, you know, I served around Donald Trump. I served in the highest levels of the national security apparatus. Uh, a lot of it's just crazy bullshit. And, and I hate to say <laughs> that because folks have been persuaded that it's real. Um, but, I, I, you know, I'm just telling you, a lot of it is crazy bullshit. And and I could see how folks who aren't in the government uh, might be persuaded that it's real. I worry about that. But I think we deserve a full uh, a fulsome conversation in this podcast about that and, and with some of the experts uh, who, who've studied it. Um, the last question I'll ask you, Amy, because I'm going to try to pin you down on something uh, absurd if I can. Kanye West canceled his appearance at Coachella. I know you're <laughs> upset about it. I know you were following it closely. What's your official position on Kanye canceling his appearance at Coachella? You know, the funny thing is, I really don't even know who Kanye West is. <laughs> and and the sad, you know, the funny thing is, I had I had all these amazing young American patriots working on my campaign, my Senate campaign in 2020. They were all like in their 20s. And they would bring up these, you know, Hollywood stars and they would tell me something. Hey, tweet about this or say something. I'm like, who are these people? And so I think they thought I was like, you know, the old grandma or something because I didn't know anything. But I, I really don't know. I think he's a rapper, maybe. <laughs> this is, that's that's as good as I could have hoped for. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm going to send you some Kanye jams or maybe not. He's become very controversial. Uh Amy McGrath, you have gone above and beyond by joining me for this podcast. It's always a blast to talk to you. And and I just want to thank you. You're a patriot and you continue to stand up for the most important fight of our lives, which is the fight for our democracy. So I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been great to have you today. Well, thank you, Miles. Thank you for what you're doing and for all your listeners. um, I just urge everybody that the threats are, are very real. Uh, let's not let's not forget about our democracy and do all we can to help. Amy McGrath, thank you for joining us and thank you, listeners. We will be back later this week uh, with a number uh, another veteran uh, who's got interesting things to say about the direction of our country and our national security. Join us for a conversation on Friday. Thank you for tuning in to Speaking Up. We will chat with you soon. <laughs>